sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Lord, you've made the great exchange. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. You only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. We're coming to some hard teaching today, Lord, that you gave us. You gave your disciples and through them us. We ask that you'd help us to hold in both hands your mercy and grace and yet your holiness and purity and to live in the light of both. Amen. Please do take your seats and uh, another welcome to the wider family of Aaron and Elle. And I realized this morning that with these names are so symmetrical, it's unbelievable. Aaron, Elle, Annalise, Elijah, you know, you're going to have to have two more children named A and E. And if you had someone called Zach, it would just blow the whole thing apart. Um, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be preaching on that text that uh, Andy just read for us. Uh, in a series on Mark's Gospel. Um, last year, when, when finally lockdown was lifting, uh, two of my sons, my teenage boys, asked me if I would take them to Alton Towers, which is a theme park in the Midlands. A um, bit like Chesington, but it has more intense rides, I think. And we went, and I, I used to be quite into rides. I worked at Chesington World of Adventures as a young person, I, I, I worked on the rides. In fact, on, a, on an off day, you could go on a ride 20 times as an employee. There's nothing else to do. So I had quite a stomach for it. So I'm feeling a bit self, sort of self-confident. And so my two boys said, we want to go on this ride called the Smiler. The Smiler. Oh my goodness. I wasn't smiling. <laughs> I've never experienced anything so uncomfortable in my life. It was like being flung from one side to another in a most intense fashion. Turned upside down, inside out, thrown up, jolted, back and forth. I thought, I'm 50 years old, I'm going to die. <laughs> we got at the end and the boy said, that was great, can we go around again? No, I'm not going on it ever again. Why, Dad, did you feel sick? I don't know, my stomach's back there. My bladder's over there. We're not going to talk about any more body parts. Every bend was a new twist or turn. You didn't know if you're coming up or down. And that is a bit like the experience of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. Every time, every new chapter, in fact, partway through, there's another jolt and another thing is turned upside down. Now, we've been saying that Mark can be read as a tale of two halves. Uh, the, the first half has just culminated as a hinge in chapter 8, and now we're into the second half. The big reveal of what this book is all about was when Jesus first spoke in chapter 1, verse 15, and he said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. So we're basically looking for a kingdom. What's this kingdom like? And therefore, the king Who's the king? What's the king like? And the first half of Mark, everyone's asking, who is Jesus? Everyone's asking. And finally, Peter's got the right answer in chapter 8. You are the king or the Messiah. Okay, that's good. We've got the answer. Or have we? See, immediately after that, Peter shows that he's not really fully understood what it means for Jesus to be king because Jesus is a different kind of king than anyone the world has ever seen. So the second half is asking, what has this king come to do? And Jesus spends much more time in the second half of the book in intensive teaching times, 
schooling his disciples intensely. It's a thorough process of re-education because they need to have their world, their intellectual world, their spiritual world turned upside down to understand that the way of the kingdom of God is the way of the cross, which is a way of shame, weakness, apparent failure. And you know, this book is not merely giving us uh, information about Jesus Christ that's very interesting and very well put together. It is also a manual for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Mark is an instruction manual for disciples. It's what it's written for. And so the character of being a kingdom person, a follower of Jesus, is being illustrated and demonstrated in this second half. And it is so countercultural. It's against anything any other faith calls for, anything any other philosophy or culture calls for. And here's the lesson I think we see in this passage. You ready? Good. The kingdom of God is built through people who invest their lives serving others, not serving their own kingdom. The kingdom of God is built through people, ordinary people, who invest their lives serving others rather than serve their own little kingdom. And if you've closed your Bible, please do turn back to Mark chapter 9, page 1013. The astonishing failure of the disciples to grasp the nature of Jesus' mission is shown to us at the beginning here in a story that could be almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. I don't know whether to laugh or cry at this first bit. Notice, Jesus says, verse 30, 31, he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, and this is the second time he said it, the Son of Man is going, Son of Man is Jesus, it's a messianic title. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be delivered or betrayed. This is new information here. Someone's going to betray him into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. This is the import of what Jesus is telling them. I'm going to be killed, betrayed and killed, and I will rise up on the third day. Now, just imagine that Jesus himself has said that to you. You didn't understand it. What are you then going to talk about? Do you know what they were talking about? They were talking about who was the greatest. I mean, just think about that. You, you can't make that up, can you? <laughs> he gets to verse 33. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. I think he knew the answer here, don't you? <laughs> he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? And they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Jesus has just told you that he's going to be betrayed and killed and you're arguing about which one of you is the best in the team. Oh dear. I mean, that's far off, isn't it? You know that game where you go getting warmer, getting warmer, getting colder, getting... they're freezing over there. They've got no idea. Now, that's a contrast, but let's not be too quick to judge those disciples, shall we? Because we're all, by nature, very invested in our own kingdom. It might be your family. Your family's your kingdom. That's the place where you are great. You're a great mum. And the reason you can kind of tell if this is going on is if when you're challenged about being a great mum, it really upsets you. It's too important to you to, to be a great mum. 
That's because that's your kingdom, friend. There are other things we can think of, people who invest themselves in the kingdom of their career, the kingdom of their beauty. Spend so much time looking in the mirror. Can't walk past a car without checking your look. I've given up on that, by the way, (laughs) as you can tell. We all have these little kingdoms. And I want to be great in mine. Patient teacher that he is, Jesus takes the time to sit down and work it through with them. Uh, He goes to the house, and and the rabbis would teach in an authoritative posture of seated. So this is not a cozy fireside chat. This is teaching time. It's, It's lesson time. Now, they could have got a roasting for what just happened, couldn't they? Really. But what they received was a beautiful and unforgettable lesson because the issue that caused the argument, greatness is important enough for Jesus to sit down and address it. And nothing changes, does it, in life? Greatness. From the playground to the boardroom. People are fighting about who's the best. Who gets to be first? Greatness. What an idol. What a drug. It captures the hearts of nations. It drives individuals to obsession. The British even added it to the country's name, Great Britain. (laughs) Where is greatness to be found? What about you? Do you find greatness in being popular, in your possessions, in your power, or some kind of performance? All these things will destroy you. I think you know that. In so many ways, we are like the disciples. We want to be on the in crowd. Three of them had gone up. We thought about this uh, recently. Three went up the mountain with the Lord, and they saw something that no one's ever seen. They saw Jesus transformed, so shining and bright, it was like it was dazzling. No, they they couldn't think of the words. They had this awesome experience, and Jesus had warned them, don't tell anyone about that. So they come down the mountain, and Jesus is sort of radiant, and And the others are seeing them, but they're not allowed to tell anything about it. So I know that where I would have been in this story, I would have been one of the other nine who were down at the base camp thinking, I wonder what they saw. You know? Hey, come, tell me what was up at the top of that mountain. Sorry, we're not allowed to tell. You know, we we can even try to be great in the ways that we serve in the church. To get noticed to please people, to have them approve of us or like us, to catch their attention, to be accepted. I think we're all prone to this, you know. But we're so blind to ourselves, it takes a while to catch up. And again, I think the diagnostic test is when something in your Christian service gets, I don't know, somehow interfered with or, or, or there's a block or, or you're not valued, you're overlooked, snubbed or... And it's just, it leads to an inordinate reaction. Anger, how dare, how dare they? You know, I've been doing this for 20 years and no one's ever thanked me. You know, that kind of mentality. We've got to be so aware of our desire to be great, to be accepted. And, wanted. and that's why verse 35, these words of Jesus are so stinging, aren't they? Sitting down, Jesus calls the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. In this kingdom, service, greatness equals service. 
If you want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, you're going to be the last, the tail end person, the one who didn't get picked on the school football team, the one who didn't get the exam results, the, the person of no status. That's the person that Jesus thinks is great, the person who serves. And there are no exclusions. And Jesus is calling all of his followers to be servants. And you know, it's still the same. And so verses 36 to 50 are going to show us what following Jesus and being a servant is like. The kingdom of God, remember, is built through the lives of people who invest themselves in serving others, not building their own kingdom. And that is a world turned upside down. And there are three places Jesus highlights where our posture's got to change, friends. Three places, and they all begin with S. The first one is status. The second is someone. And the third is stumbling. Status, someone, and stumbling. Firstly, status, verses 30 to 37. Jesus sits them down, and he gives them this amazing, stunning visual aid. Uh, they're in a the house. A friend of mine called Pete Horlock preached on this passage, and he gave a wonderful way of looking at this. He said, just let this image sit with you for a minute. They're in, they're in a house, and they've had this chat along the road, and they're all feeling a bit embarrassed. And so the disciples are there. And, and Jesus was welcomed by extended family and, and disciples, followers, people who, who were supporters of his ministry. They've come to a house. They've eaten. And this family have, been, have served them and probably are tidying up. And the disciples are all huddling around Jesus, ready for the lesson. They're, they're ready. They should, they've now got their notebook, notebook pad ready. And the family are bustling around, clearing up the dinner. And there's some children in the corner doing what kids do when there's a lot of adults in the house. You know what that is? Let's play over here. And they won't see us because they're busy talking, and that way we can put off bedtime. Every child in every generation does this. Any kids here, we know, we know what you're up to, by the way. Some children are hanging around in the corner playing, and all of a sudden, Uncle Jesus comes over, and he picks up a really small one and takes him in the middle of the circle with all the big men. And he stands in there and says something to these guys, and they're all looking like this. And then he gives the boy a huge hug takes him in his arms and folds him and the boy suddenly feels really safe and really valued and really quite important because look who's given him a hug and then he tells all the grown-ups they need to do the same because when you welcome children you welcome Jesus and his father now the disciples at this point are even more confused so what you want us to go around hugging kids <laughs> New York pastor and writer Timothy Keller writes, says this this is a remarkable metaphor to welcome a child is to take a weak and dependent being into your care since children have extensive needs and give very little in return in Jesus context children also had a lower social status than they do now even today, people whose career or full-time work is to care for children are in general paid less and have lower social status. What then does this image teach us about following Christ? It means that we have to redefine our idea of status and we have to honor, respect, and welcome anyone of lesser status. 
That's a priority for the church. Those who are seen as below you educationally. Those who are seen as below you economically. Those who are seen as below you in terms of the value culture places upon people. L has spoken very movingly about the impact of race in our culture. There should be none of that in the church of God. We're to welcome the child, the, the person with no status. So who is that for you? Who is that for you? Who's the person who actually, when you look at them, really, you're not going to get anything out of that relationship. The estimated relationship potential is very low. The person who's probably going to be a drain on you. They're quite dependent. That's the person Jesus says you need to go to and serve. And he says, use a warm welcome like hospitality. The greatest person then in this kingdom is the one who seeks to serve the little ones. The ones of no account. Why is that? Because this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's the great one who welcomed us when we were lost. When we were stubborn, ungrateful, self-absorbed. We were living in this echo chamber of our own little kingdom, thinking that we were the center of the universe. And Jesus reached out his arms and drew us in to his kingdom. Jesus Christ, the greatest one, the, 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 the king of heaven, became small. Became a little baby, became a man living on earth to meet us. Became a slave. Became homeless. Became despised and outcast. Died a horrid slave's death to bring the little ones into his kingdom. And through his cross to bring the likes of us into his family. That's how the kingdom operates. Status changes forever. It's redefined. Do we, friends, give more honor to those the world sees as powerful or wise or successful? At King's Church, we need to keep asking God to make us a church that welcomes those who are needy and lowly and small. Especially those who can't repay us, who are forgotten, who will never bring approval or pots of money. Jesus' kingdom redefines, this idea of service redefines our view of status. Secondly, it redefines our view of someone. And I know that's not a good title in a sermon, okay? It's not a good heading. But I needed one that began with S. And that might make it stick. Because what we see in verse 38 to 41 is that we serve others when we celebrate the work of other people of the others look at verse 38 teacher said John we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us I mean that, these guys are not looking good at the moment are they first of all they've heard what Jesus said on the road and then started arguing about who was the greatest then they see someone who's actually doing Jesus work driving out demons in his name and what's their response you stop you've got to stop that now we don't know who you are you're not in this club what? Guys, John was one of the ones who went up the mountain. And like Peter, he demonstrates by the question that he hasn't really grasped what's going on in the kingdom. He seems to be stuck on the idea that this unnamed somebody who's been doing exorcisms in Jesus' name isn't part of the crew. 
And that looks awfully like John and the 12 want power in Jesus' name to be their thing, not someone else. And perhaps this guy is doing things that they had failed to do themselves. Remember last week, we noticed that when Jesus came down from the mountain into the valley, the disciples had failed to cast out a demon. And they were shamed by that. And Jesus said it only comes out by prayer. In other words, you weren't praying, guys. You thought you could just do it. There's someone. We don't know his name. Amazing, isn't it? There's someone out there doing ministry in Jesus' name, and we don't know them. He's doing gospel work, and he's not one of us. And evidently, he is dependent on Jesus' power. And Jesus affirms, affirms his ministry. Don't stop him, verse 39. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus affirms this guy has listened and learned and is doing Jesus' work. It's very important, I think, for Christians to remind us that the kingdom of God is far bigger than our vision and what we're doing and our circles, especially in the divided church on earth. Do we at King's Church generously affirm and celebrate gospel work that's going on in other ministries and other places and other churches? It's part of being a servant is that you celebrate other people. It's not all about you. You know, it is terribly easy to adopt the posture that what's going on in our church is really the only game in town. <laughs> I spent 12 years in ministry up in the northwest in Manchester, just moved back here last year. Noticed a pattern up there, and I don't think it's particular to the northwest. Those of us who really value the, the Bible and teach the Bible and think that's central to, uh, to ministry, sometimes called conservative evangelicals, would often say, oh, there's nothing going on between this place and this place. I'm going to just pick a couple of random places in the Northwest. There's nothing going on between Lytham, St. Anne's and Blackpool. Or there's nothing going on between here. There's nothing going on in North Manchester spiritually there's nothing going on there's nothing go there's a lot going on in cheshire but there's not a lot going on in the lake district it, it, it was like this there's nothing going on and what i realized that what people meant was there were no ministries there worth knowing about whereas in fact if you dug a bit deeper you find there were god's people in that area doing kingdom work and serving jesus they just weren't our kind of christians now of course we need to be discerning and hold to biblical truth. Amen. But are we quick to celebrate the good in other people's church and ministry or quick to pick it apart? Let me point out that in this passage, calling out sin has got to start at home. That's what Jesus is going to tell us next. So let me just encourage us to be wise about how we speak about other people's church, ministry, Christian experience. Let's be wise about our presence on social media. What is it that you click like or what do you retweet? Social media has connected us all to this vast world and it's not all good. It can be so harsh 
Christians retweet and speak and say things on social media they would never say if they looked someone in the face. Wouldn't dream of saying it. But oh, it can be harsh, critical, divided, towards the someone. Are you tempted to vent, rant, or like and retweet things that actually are not helpful? Because whoever isn't against us is for us. What are your comments in the public sphere contributing to the kingdom of God? Remember that idea again. The kingdom of God is built through people who invest their lives serving others rather than their own little kingdom. And the first two things we've thought about are how that redefines our approach to status and how that redefines our approach to the someone. And then the third thing is stumbling. Jesus raises the issue of sin. He says as servants we need to be serious about killing sin in our own lives and helping others to do it. And this final section is very convicting, but it's for our good. We must be very careful about stumbling. Look at verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now that's a warning. This millstone that Jesus talks about was a large flat stone, very heavy, that was used to grind grain. And it was too big for a human to turn it, so they would harness it to a donkey, beast of burden, and the beast would pull the stone and turn it around. Imagine a stone like that, Jesus says, and it's tied not around your ankle, but around your neck. And you're thrown into the sea. That's a terrible image. What would prompt the loving Lord Jesus to say such a harsh warning? Here's the answer. Causing the little ones who believe in me to stumble. I've seen two little ones on this stage today. Two delightful kids. Wasn't it cute? When Elijah didn't want to turn around. Imagine getting Elijah from... And he's in your care. And you let him stumble into the road. And he's hit by a car. Imagine bringing one of those kids to your house. And you've got an open fire. And as you're talking and relaxing, the kid walks over. And you just, you just didn't, you're, not, you're not careful. The child fell into the flames. You know, Jesus is saying, you wouldn't dream of doing that. So why would you allow your example and your influence to make an, one of my little ones one of Jesus' family, sin. Is that serious? This language of stumbling, it can be doing something immoral, what we probably tend to think of as sins. It can also mean to lead someone to a place where they actually are unbelieving. They just don't accept Jesus anymore. Or it can mean leading them to accept some false teachings, wrong teachings against the Scriptures. Those are all examples of stumbling. And you know, every single day we make hundreds of decisions and our decisions influence the people around us. doesn't matter who you are. Decisions about our attitude. What is our attitude going to be today or this moment while I'm feeling hangry? Our posture towards other people, our tone, our response to stress or frustration our speech, 
gossip, slander, hurtful joking, complaint. How we react to those who irritate us or oppose us, get in our way, people at work, people at home. How we conduct ourselves in our workplace, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, our media consumption, the way we dress, our concern for holiness or lack of it. This world belongs to a holy God who holds us accountable for those choices that we make day by day. Verse 42 is very sobering because it's talking about how you and I can impact other Christians. They're the little ones. And Jesus is fiercely protective of his family. Notice the seriousness of sin. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands going to hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Let me just say, these are not literal instructions. There is a small number of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years who have taken aspects of this literally. Uh, one man pushed his eye out with a screwdriver. Uh, these are not literal, okay? These are, this is very Jewish kind of teaching. It's very vivid. And the idea is the hand is the thing that makes you your actions, putting things into action. The foot is your direction, isn't it? The places you're going. The eye is the gateway to the heart. What you've seen stays with you and influences you. What you watch shapes you. Hand, foot, eye. If one of them is causing you to sin, says Jesus, deal with it ever so severely. And unfortunately, we, Bible-believing Christians, are very prone to something called cheap grace. Grace, unmeasured, boundless, free. Grace that Jesus gave to me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. All these things we sing, we love them. Grace is God's kindness to us that we didn't deserve. And yet, if we continue to sin carelessly, we make that grace cheap. The apostles use very, very strong imagery for this. They say a Christian who keeps on sinning is like a dog that goes back to its own vomit and eats it up. How seriously do we take these things? Jesus says this to underscore its gravity. It's very, very important, very, very important that our sin doesn't harm somebody else. You see, we're used to thinking about sin between us and God. You know, that's like the vertical axis. God's there and here we are. Jesus here is talking about the horizontal one. It's between us. That means your sin affects other people, not just you. So our sin can harm another Christian or cause them to turn away from Jesus by our selfishness, by the way we exasperate other people, by our pride, our arrogance. Our bitterness, racism, 
They can cause another person to stumble. Could these things, something in your life right now, cause somebody to turn away or mock God? What is the nature of your influence upon the people God has placed in your life? You have an influence, friend. You may be a sister or a brother. You may be a colleague. You may be a friend or a parent, child. Are you someone whose life encourages others to pursue Jesus? He loves his family. We need to take that sin very seriously. So this is what it means to serve. Kingdom is going to be built through people who invest their lives serving others, changing their view of status of someone else and of stumbling. And that should challenge us all. It should challenge us all. Jerry Bridges, a Christian writer on holiness, has written about selfishness. He says, we're all worse at home than we are outside of home because at home the restraints are off. Bridges advises, it would be good to ask other family members to point out any tendencies towards selfishness they see in us. There's something you can do over Sunday lunch. No, there's going to be plenty of conversation today. <laughs> it would be good to ask other family members to point out any tendencies towards selfishness they see in us. And we should do this without becoming defensive or retaliating by bringing up selfishness in the other person. <laughs> and then we should genuinely repent and pray. Look, it's hard stuff, isn't it? It's hard hitting. Jesus is hard hitting. He is, and I'm not going to pull the punch. But remember, the visual aid, the little child who gets pulled into the middle, stood there and then enfolded. That's you as well. That's you. Let's pray.